today to Isaiah 44, and uh, we're talking about the end time work and the beginnings of how God is going to reconcile His church, and we'll pick it up today in Isaiah 44. We left off uh, about verses 21 and 2, so let's pick it up there. It's telling a story about the end time church and then some of the things that will occur. And I had in mind to get down to this particular area we're moving into at the moment uh, for a very specific reason, as I'll explain later. Isaiah 44, verse 21, he says, Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, you are my servant, O Israel, you shall not be forgotten of me. So God tells us in the New Testament, I will never leave nor forsake you. And that is really a repeat of what is said here. He said, I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions and as a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. And of course, Christ is our Redeemer. And all those things in the New Testament that repeat what is said here is a matter of prophecy. But he makes it clear that he will come back. I think we read yesterday how we have suffered double for our sins there in the first verse or two of Isaiah 40. And he will come and return and bless. Now he's still talking here about the end time church. He's not talking about uh, the kingdom or the millennium yet, as we shall see. He says, seeing, O you heavens, for the eternal has done it. He's the only one that can forgive sins. We can have mercy on each other. We can forgive each other in our limited way. But our forgiveness does not create life. Our forgiveness does not prevent death. It is only the forgiveness that comes from God through Christ that allows those spiritual and eternal blessings. Now, he does tell us that we are never to be offended and we are not to give offense. Uh, Both very, very difficult things to consider. Uh, We get our feelings hurt so very easily over so very many and trivial and to us seemingly insurmountable issues, I suppose. But God says... If we are like him, we will never be offended, and we must be careful not to give offense to anyone else. So he says he will judge us according to how we treat each other, as we've been over many times. But here he's making a very specific point, that he has forgiven our sins. He spewed us out of his mouth because of them, and then he says, I will forgive And we'll move on to accomplish some work. That's the whole point here at the end time. So he said, sing, for God has done it. And he's, uh, let's see, did I read all of this? He says, break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree therein, for the eternal has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. 
So even the earth itself is going to, in a way, rejoice over what God is doing. And here at the end, uh, the cattle, the animals mourn at this point. Uh, the whole earth is upset. Everything is upset. So he's be going to begin to straighten that out and everything on earth live at peace. Now that'll be in the millennium worldwide, but he's going to do it as a microcosm here at the end for those whom he has already then forgiven and decided to use to finish his work before the rest of the earth. And we're going to get into that here. Thus says the Eternal, your Redeemer, and he that formed you from the womb. Now, there is a certain amount of predestination, uh, perhaps from the womb. Uh, we know that he spoke of Jeremiah and a few others as having been known from the womb. And it may be very well that he looked upon you, me, us, when we were still yet in our mother's womb, uh, looked at our genetic makeup, our DNA, uh, what was engendered there. Until a baby has been formed in the mother's womb, you don't know what kind of child that is. A certain father and mother might have several children that are quite different. Take Jacob and Esau, for instance. They can have very different children. And God is looking for those he can work with. And perhaps once you have been formed, he can then decide that. Because you don't know what day or night a child might be conceived. And what type of child that will be until that conception has occurred. And then God knows everything there is to know about that child before it's even born. So perhaps he called more of us from the womb than we might even begin to realize. I am the eternal that makes all things. Now he's making a statement here ahead of some things that he's about to announce. That stretched forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself. Evolution didn't do it. Darwin didn't do it. Uh, nobody did it but God. He's making this statement ahead of some things he's about to say. He says that frustrates the tokens of the liars and makes diviners go crazy, makes them mad. That turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolish. So the wisest of the world, the smartest people, the most educated, the ones that think they know everything, he says, I'll turn them upside down and backward and make them look absolutely foolish. That is his intent, that is his purpose, and he's about to do it. That commits or confirms the word of his servant. Now, Isaiah was his servant. And Isaiah wrote some things that are going to turn into quite a powerful witness. And God is going to confirm these words. Now, we've been reading them for quite some years now. And 
God is going to confirm that what we've been reading from Isaiah is indeed true. And what it is going to do is turn the world upside down. He performs the counsel of his messengers that says to Jerusalem, now here's God who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. Says in Zechariah, he will choose Jerusalem yet again. And to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. We know from quite a few different scriptures, which I won't turn to at the moment, that Jerusalem was to be uh, uninhabited for many generations. No man would live there. I don't know how the whole world has ignored those scriptures, but he said it would be desolate for many generations. I think Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or several different places that that is mentioned. So the cities are decayed. Jerusalem is decayed and no longer exists. I think it was Herodias, uh, I can't say his name, uh, said he would tear down the foundations of Jerusalem so that no one would know that there would ever been anything there. And that happened. Jerusalem has been desolate ever since for many, many generations. Well, here at the end, God says he's going to raise it back up. He says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. Now, he did those things historically. He dried up the Red Sea so they could walk across. Uh, he backed up the Jordan so they could walk across on dry land, uh, going into the promised land. So those are a couple of times that he's done that in the past. But this is also not just a reminder of what he has done in the past, but also foretells the future. And if you look around, you'll see that our rivers are beginning to dry up, and our dams are going empty, and pretty soon they won't be able to generate electricity because of lack of water flow. Then he gets down to a specific person. He says that says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. So this is an end time Cyrus speaking or being spoken of at a time when God is going to turn the world upside down. This has not happened yet. Now, he uses a type here of Cyrus, which, as you know, when Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was thrown down and the Persians took over, Cyrus came in as the king. And he was part Israelite, for one thing, uh, through Esther and the king. But when the 70 years was over, two, three years later, he had okayed a project and had set Ezra in charge to go build the temple. And then a little later, 
Nehemiah as well uh, to build the wall of Jerusalem. And here both are mentioned. He also had involved there a Joshua and a Zerubbabel in the building of the temple. So when you go to Haggai and Zechariah, you see an end-time temple ready to be built at the time of the two witnesses and the remnant, and they are to be built so that the beast and false prophet can pollute them, and then the church will flee to Zion. So he uses the Cyrus of old and past history to explain what he's doing here at the end. So there'll be a Cyrus who will appear, and he will do all of God's pleasure. Now, what is that pleasure? Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So this person, Cyrus, uh, will show up, and he will say these words. Now, when I came to understand that this area was the promised land, the Zion was the true Zion, the Zion Park and the staircase area that we live in and with, uh, I was not aware of Jerusalem or where it would be. That was left out of the understanding I was given knew about Zion, knew about a lot of other things, but I didn't know about Jerusalem. And I think there's a very good reason for that, uh, possibly this, that God had already had someone learning that, number one, and B, had I known where Jerusalem was, I would have probably been working hard to find a piece of land right near. And that isn't where God wanted us. But I know that that's what I would have done, was tried to get as close to that as I could. So there may be quite a few different reasons why God did not include that. But here he had said in Isaiah there would come someone along who would say that. Now we'll find out a little later on here that this man is not converted. He's not part of the church. And Cyrus was not really either. He was the king of Persia. And in that sense, then, the king of Israel, because Israel was in captivity to the Persian Empire. But he was friendly toward Israel and the Jews because he was, by blood, part Israelite. So when they asked, can we go build a temple and can we build the wall of Jerusalem, he said, sure. And then he says, take of the treasury, give everybody what they need, pay wages, Give everybody everything they need to do your project. Be quite generous with Ezra and Nehemiah and the people who went. And like 42,000 and some people went to build a temple. I don't think we'll have that many here at the end because it's a 10% remnant, but uh, they did then. Now, in 2006, right at the end of the year, last, I think probably on a Wednesday, last Wednesday of 2006, a man showed up here looking for the pastel. Uh, he says, are you, are you the pastel? And I said, huh? I'm not sure exactly what he said. He kind of has a speech impediment. And uh, 
yes, I'm the pastor, and then he wanted to talk. So he told me he wanted to show me some things. He had been studying <clears throat> this area since he was 14 years old, trying to find out what true history is. And he had read, of course, that Adam was made of red dirt, and Eden meant that. So he had searched all the places on earth that he could find that had red dirt to find the real place. He'd been to Georgia and to Nicaragua and <coughs> I think to Spain or wherever there was red that he researched. And then he realized, wait, where I grew up in my backyard, there's red everywhere. Duh. <laughs> and came back and began studying this area and the petroglyphs and various things. And he discovered the site of Jerusalem. He understood about Zion. He understood this was the promised land. So he had been doing this study for like 60 years and has an awful lot of knowledge. But he took some of us the next Sunday, first Sunday in 07, and showed us some sites that I showed a few people yesterday, in fact, of some petroglyphs and various things. Uh, that point that Israel was indeed here. <clears throat> and we were, I'm leading up to something here, and that is within a few weeks after I met him, I was in a, he was living at the time in a white house out on the Minersville Highway out near the site of Jerusalem. And I was sitting in his office. I think Nelson and a couple of others may have been there that day. I'm not sure. But he was sitting by his desk, and I was sitting there near him. And he says, uh, he's talking about the area. I think I'd ask a question about where Mount Hermon was. Because I'd read in the scripture that the dew from Hermon comes down on Zion. And I'd been to the Middle East, and Mount Hermon was like 80 miles north of Jerusalem and what they call Zion there. And I said, how does the dew from 80 miles away come and land on a little graveyard near Jerusalem? That didn't seem to fit. So I had come to the conclusion that Cedar Mountain used to be Mount Hermon. Because I've stood at the overlook there on the mountain and look down over Zion and seeing the fog go down over Zion. I had witnessed that. And I thought, to fulfill that psalm, this must be Mount Hermon I'm standing on. So I asked him, where is Mount Hermon? And he pointed at Cedar Mountain. He had that figured out. And I don't remember exactly what all was said, but in a little bit he said, you know, Jerusalem, or the temple in the temple, must be built right here in Iron County. And my jaw nearly hit my chest, because I was familiar with this verse, and was anticipating that someday there would be some, come someone come along who would say to Jerusalem, you shall be built, 
and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. And I was sitting at this man's desk, and that emanated from his mouth in that many words. And I was shocked. Was that a fulfillment of this? I believe it was. Now let's read on. Thus says the Eternal to his anointed, to this Cyrus, part Israelite, uh, fulfilling an end-time part of what the original Cyrus did, whose right hand I have held. And I think that he would not have learned the things about this area and its history and the uh, things of God had not God been guiding and directing what he was doing. I've held his hand for a purpose. What is that purpose? To subdue nations before him. Now, if this man who sat there and said that to me is this man, then the nations have to be subdued before him. That's quite a feat. It's hard to subdue any nation, is it not? Even for the U.S. with our bombs and everything else, it's not real easy to subdue a nation that has any strength at all. (laughs) Afghanistan, for instance, or Vietnam. And I will loose the loins of kings. That is an expression that meant they'll wet their pants. Their loins are loosened. Maybe dirty their pants. They will be so afraid and so shocked that their loins will be loosened. To open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. So God then says, I am going to scare some nations half to death by opening some gates, and they will not be shut. Can't be hidden, can't be swept under the carpet. They'll open. Well, what are they going to show? I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. Now, I'll tell you this. True history is a very, very difficult thing to understand. And it has been hidden. There have been evidences of Israelite presence all over this country, back in the east, in the Middle West, and out here. And the world has its narrative of the Middle East and what went on there, uh, thinking that Israel built that Jerusalem. The Arabs say clearly they built it, and some of them were asked about it. And they said, we know it's not the real Jerusalem, but we built it anyway. So they indeed do have a claim on that Jerusalem. But the real one that has been desolate for many generations, your Bible says, they have not discovered. And they have this narrative about uh, the American Indians and discoveries here. And some of the governments of the world understand 
that there are vast treasures buried in the United States. <coughs> Excuse me. Spain buried treasures here. The Aztecs buried treasures here. The Israelites did. That's what Christopher Columbus came seeking, not spices and apes. He had maps of this country, crude somewhat, but maps. And on and on it goes uh, about this area. John Wesley Powell of the U.S. government came out here allegedly to be surveying, and he had mercury in his belongings, which is what you use to separate out gold with. He was seeking treasures, not surveying. That was a facade. Brigham Young stood within 50 miles of here and said, somewhere within 50 miles of here is the greatest treasure known ever to man. And he told the Mormons, don't look for it. And then he sent out scouts to try to find it. And he was afraid that a wagon train who came through here on their way to California we're going to discover it or go out and tell stories about it in California and create a gold rush here. So he had the whole wagon train massacred and blamed it on the Indians. And, of course, that turned out it wasn't quite that way. So people have known for a long, long time. Uh, I talked to a man a few years ago who was in Zion Park with his father during World War II. And his father encountered some Germans who were in the park, and Hitler had sent them over to try to find the treasures that he knew were in this area. And the, the kid was old enough that he remembered the conversation. Uh, and when I talked to him, he related the whole thing. So a lot of truth has been known, but it's been covered up. When they've come across artifacts that would indicate Israel's presence here, they have hidden them through the Smithsonian Institute, or they've declared them a fraud and that somebody had concocted them. <clears throat> and that has gone on for a long time. And even the Mormons had word out among their people who were settling all over this area that if they found any Spanish artifacts or swords or skeletons, or things that had to do with mining and treasures of the past, they were to turn them into the church. And the church, the Mormon church, has a huge inventory of things that have been dug up in Utah, northern Arizona, and in this general area. Because they wanted that hidden so that they could find it. Now, these things have been going on for a long time. So... They are difficult to find. A lot of people, a lot of nations have tried to do it and have been unable to. That's why God says he'll open the gates and they won't be shut and he'll make the crooked places straight and break the barriers, the brass, the iron, the difficult things that keep you from finding. And all this effort hundreds of thousands of hours, thousands and tens of thousands of people have been poring over the treasure maps 
of the western United States and have spent countless hours, and many people have been killed over it, uh, both in privation and consequences of, of uh, prospecting, or murdered over those treasures. <clears throat> so these things are known, and the maps, uh, boy, they've gone all over the place trying to find them. But he said to this Cyrus, I'm going to open the gates, and I'm going to cut the bars that would keep you from getting there. And I will give you, verse 3, the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Eternal, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. So God has over the years, protected King Solomon's mines, uh, the treasures of Israel, probably the uh, temple ornaments and vessels, uh, perhaps in the library part he has kept maybe the original scrolls of the scriptures and other records, maps, that will show where everything was. You know how most of those places in the nation of Israel over there got their names? Constantine, in the 300s, sent his mother, Helen, over to the Middle East on a two-week trip, apparently, to find Mount Sinai and to name the places there with biblical names. Now, archaeologists have been studying for decades and decades to come up with what this is and what that is. But in two weeks, that woman came and toured the area and was able to find all the biblical sites and put the correct names on them and find Mount Sinai. You know, today, they estimate that there are people who believe in 28 different spots as Mount Sinai in the Middle East. They don't have a clue where it is. We've got 28 different spots, the different ones have identified and saying that's it. So God hid these things. And he says to this Cyrus, I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. One of the treasure maps has a spot where it shows a library. And then it has a spot where the map shows a cemetery. I believe there are mummies there. The field of Macpella may be there. Uh, all the things that would prove where Israel was and who they were and what the actual places are including Jerusalem, including the decayed cities of Judah that have been desolate for generations since Israel was taken captive the last time. Remember, they'd been in captivity. They came out, went through the wilderness. And then Deuteronomy 28, they were told in the blessings and cursings chapter there of what would happen if they did not obey God, and they didn't. And he said, I will take you captive in ships. I think the last verse or verse or two. 
of Deuteronomy 28. Now, traditionally in the Middle East, if you wanted to take anybody from that Israel to that Egypt, it would have been much more expeditious and efficient to just march them through the Gaza Strip and down to Egypt. Simple. Not that long a walk. It would have been more difficult to bring enough ships to load them up on a coast that doesn't have many ports in Israel and ship them down to the mouth of the Nile, which would be very difficult to negotiate with ships. Much easier just to march them over there. But God had strictly said, when I take you into captivity again, it will be in ships. And what he did was took them out of here, thy ships, and you could navigate up here in those days. Uh, even in Bryce Canyon, or park, they have maps there that the geologists have driven, drawn up, which indicate seaways going all the way up from the Gulf of California into Canada. And east of here, the same thing. They found a Phoenician ship just south of the Salton Sea, buried in the sand. All kinds of things. You know, there are a lot of lies out there. I learned in school, public school, that there were no horses in North America until the Spanish brought them in. But I've gone to a little museum down at Tacopa, California, near Death Valley, have a little museum there, and it has horse tracks, petrified. And it has camel tracks, petrified. And they have a camel carcass, petrified, that came from that area. There are a lot of lies been told. So, true history is very, very hard to find. Now, a man who was in the church, Steve Collins, wrote a book some years ago, and he had taken a lot of information from museums and things, and from this uh, one archaeologist, I've read his books now, I can't say his name, uh, wrote some very astute books about the uh, berms in Ohio and the different things around the country that have that uncovered Israelite uh, things for sure. Uh, and Steve wrote a book about that, about how Israel had come here. Now, what Steve Collins missed entirely was that all the stuff he was finding were things that Israel had left behind when they were taken captive back over to Asia and Africa. He thought, it was the other direction, that Israel had come from Europe and left those things here. No, they left here where they had originally been and went over there on ships and left all this stuff behind. And when we came back from Europe to resettle this country, those things were already here. They were buried. It was after we got here that they started being uncovered as the nation began to be settled. So he got it right. There's a lot of stuff here about Israel, but he's got it going the wrong direction. <laughs> so there's been a lot of confusion. But God says that there are treasures in dark places, 
and hidden riches in secret places. He himself has been able to preserve those. And a lot of greedy people have tried to find them and keep other people from finding them. But God says he's going to give this Cyrus these things. That you may know, I, the Eternal, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. So God knows this man, even though we're going to see here shortly that he was not converted, does not know God. Doesn't know God. But God knows him. So this is an unconverted man. I think it's interesting that God chose to do it this way. He could have easily given these things directly to the church, right? But he didn't. He's giving them to an unconverted man who does not know him. Well, what is the purpose of all this being revealed? First of all, he states so that that man will come to know who he is. And we're going to see in just a few moments that the whole world is going to come to know who God is as a result of these things being uncovered. So he uses an unconverted man to reveal these things to an unconverted world and has the unconverted Reveal to the unconverted who God is. I find that an interesting approach. And he used an unconverted man to build uh, the temple in Jerusalem in the past, as a matter of history. So he's doing the same thing again. And another thing about that might be that if he did use somebody who was converted and give all these things to him he might get the big head and miss out on the kingdom of God because thinking he did all this. No, God won't allow that to happen. He's not going to give it to somebody in the church. He's going to give it to somebody unconverted. He may have other reasons. Those are just some things that come to mind or have over time. He says, I'm going to show you that I am the God of Israel. Verse 4, For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect. So he's saying, I'm not doing this really for your sake. I'm doing it for Jacob and my servant's sake. That's what it's all about. But it is going to the whole world and loosen the loins of kings and make them mess their britches. It's going to be so powerful. I have even called you by your name. I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. Now, this man that told me that the temple in Jerusalem had to be built in Iron County also told me a story of his past. That story was that in France... There was a farmer, had his little farm, and a man came and knocked on his door who was carrying a child. And the man was dressed like he was an important personage. And he handed the child to the farmer, and he says, This is my son. I want you to take care of him. 
And if I'm not back in a year, I'm dead. So he knew he was in danger, so he gave his son to whoever. Now that son grew up probably with the surname of that farmer, just a little child in arms. But when he grew up and went into the French Navy, he took on a new surname. That name was LeBaron, or the Baron, which is a low class royalty name. So no one knows what that child's name was. Don't know the name of his father. Don't know the name of the farmer. But he assumed a name. So whoever this individual is that's talking about here, God said, I surnamed you. And he even gave him a name, if this is the man, that's very similar to Cyrus. If you look it up, Ross and Cyrus are pretty much the same root. And a name of lower royalty, uh, which carries maybe a little weight. Now, this man doesn't grasp this. I've talked to him a lot over the years. And he thinks he's a direct descendant of Christ. The Merovingian doctrine. There are quite a few people around to believe Christ didn't die and be resurrected and go back to his father, but that he lived to an age of 104 and had several wives and a bunch of kids. This is really popular with the Mormons because they like to have lots of wives and kids. So there are a lot of them who think that they are in the direct bloodline of not just David, but of Christ himself. So about every other Mormon you'll meet will quote that a strong man with a strong arm will come from somewhere and save the Mormons. I haven't done a poll, but about every other Mormon I've met will make mention of that. And if you question them much, they think they're that man. So there's an awful lot of them around who are going to be that strong arm. And this man is one of them. But God says, you've not known me, and I am the one who surnamed you. So everything's fitting here so far. Though you have not known me. Verse 5, I am the eternal, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded you, though you have not known me. So he says, I'm the one that held your hand. I'm the one that girded you or clothed you, but you've not known me. And he repeats it, to be sure. Now, the Mormon church calls themselves the saints of the latter day. They're not the latter day saints. We are. And those who believe the same way, not just us. They're not the Latter-day Saints. They don't even know God. In fact, a lot of them, like this man, don't believe Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. They think he died and is mummified with the others. So the Mormons are way, way, way off base. They don't really believe in a living God the Father either. 
they recognize there has to be a power somewhere, and that must be God. And they often say, good is God, and God is good. To them, that's the definition of God. Goodness is God. People say, use the expression, my goodness. Does that make you God? I think that's really a bad expression for us to use. My goodness. Think about it. What does God say your goodness is? Filthy rags, deceitful, desperately wicked, and yet we use that expression commonly. Oh, my goodness. You ain't got any except the Spirit of God dwelling in you. That's the only goodness you got. We use a lot of expressions that we don't think about. They just, they just came to us in society. But there is a real living God. And that is about to be sprung on the world. And God makes it very clear. I am the eternal and there's none else. And that's in connection with these treasures that are hidden. Now, I girded you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the eternal and there is none else. What he is going to do is show unequivocally that he is God and there is none other. So whatever is hidden, as treasures of darkness and in hidden places, is so powerful that it will scare kings half to death. The whole world is going to see from east to west that God is God. God is going to make a statement. And it cannot be denied. If it is deniable, then you don't have to get scared. It will be irrefutable, undeniable, and that will loosen the loins of kings. Because everything they've ever believed about God or about afterlife or anything else is going to be exposed as garbage. Because there's only one true God. So gold and silver alone do not convince anybody who God is. They've made some pretty important discoveries over the years in Spanish galleons and so on. And here were coins and gems and jewelry and everything. Maybe billions of dollars worth in today's money. Did that convince anybody that God was God? The gold, the silver, the jewels? Nah. Just convinced them a ship sunk and had some stuff on it. That's all it convinces them of. So somebody buries a treasure and somebody else digs it up, which is what happened here, or will happen. Somebody did bury it. Somebody will dig it up. Gold and silver alone aren't going to convince anybody that God had anything to do with that. I think it's the library, the maps, perhaps the mummies, the various things that God, the temple vessels, 
the things that God has buried there that have significance that cannot be denied. You know, I am among the few crazy people on earth, you're included, who believe this was the promised land and where Jerusalem and Zion are. And if we try to tell anybody, we're crazy. I'm already that crazy guy out in the desert who thinks you're supposed to get out of the city. The whole church believes that. And then when you add this other stuff on top, completely loony. Can we at this point preach to the church and have it make any sense to them whatsoever? Not on your life. Once they're already convinced you're crazy as alone, there's nothing you can say that will change that. Now, we put a lot of important stuff out on the website. It's there if they want to look at it, but nobody wants to look at it much. Because if the originator was crazy, why bother? But this is going to be something that is not put out just for the church, but for the whole world to see that God is God. And he's going to use an unconverted man who has not known him to do it. Now, I've been associated since 06 with this man and spent a lot of time with him and have dug a lot of tunnels. And I'm getting to the point with my knees the way they are, I can't dig tunnels very well. So something's got to change. But I think we are very near the time when this prophecy will be fulfilled because the man that I'm speaking of turns 79, I think, probably next week. Uh, no, 1022 is his birthday. That's how I remember it. we got a, a gun named that, Ruger 1022. He's old, turning 79, and getting kind of crippled up, gimpy. Uh, and so is the church. And we have to have old men who are old enough to see all this who were in this generation whom God called. So a lot of things, and then you look at the world and the mark of the beast being introduced finally, and you realize we're at the end of this thing. So this prophecy will be fulfilled pretty soon. Could be within weeks, maybe months. I don't know exactly when, but I know it's real soon. Well, I had something interesting happen a few days ago that I want to relate to you, and part of going through this again is the build-up to that, because I'm wondering about something. You've heard of the History Channel. Most of you probably watched it at some time or another. Uh, they make a lot of documentaries about history and uh, are all over uh, cable TV or satellite TV with their programs, both nationally and internationally. You can see all those programs anywhere on earth. So there is a vehicle by which a lot of information could possibly be spread and spread wide. Now, if somebody digs up something, and they have it, they know where it is, they got it, how is it going to be made known from east to west that God is God and that these things prove it? 
That one I don't know. Don't know how he'll do that. God has stated a lot of things that he's going to do that he hasn't told us A, B, C, exactly how he's going to do it. He just says, I'm going to do it. So that leaves us who might be involved in the things he does, wondering how will this happen. In some cases, we draw a blank. We'll just have to wait and see. What's God going to do? Well, at some point, you have to kind of know because God begins to do things. And then you look and you say, oh, yeah. Well, I had the History Channel approach me a few days ago. And I told you that at lunch yesterday. But I want to fill you in a little more on it. Because this kind of happened in a bizarre way is what got my attention. Uh, They had a fellow named Jim Palmer down in L.A. who was involved in a project up here at Three Lakes Above Kanab and Cave Lake uh, seeking the Aztec treasures. Now, there's enough information in history, enough stuff has been found to indicate that the Aztecs moved a lot of treasure out of Mexico and took it north when the Spanish began to invade Mexico and kill the Aztecs and the Incas and and steal their treasures. <coughs> they didn't get all their treasures. They managed to haul a lot of them north. And there are people who have read some of the records who understand that. So there have been different parties who have come to this area over the years to look for these things. And there were rumors in around the area that that little place above Kanab Creek called Three Lakes, you can see those little ponds as you go up north out of Kanab, that they were buried in there. And that a man who tried to get in there died of a heart attack the same night, and uh, that was being protected, but those treasures are there. So there have been various parties that have come up and inspected the three lakes and tried to figure out how to get in or what what to, to do. And uh, they've also thought Johnson Canyon, a canyon over, uh, was the place. And I watched a documentary that had been made there. Uh, there's a story in the Lost Dutchman Mines about a hat, a mountain shaped like a hat, that was one of the landmarks. And I've seen pictures of it, and it's kind of a weird-looking hat with a real high crown. It looks more like a witch's hat, uh, if it's going to be any kind of hat. And that's the one they think that the uh, Lost Dutchman mine is talking about. <clears throat> but I know of another hat, mountain-shaped like a hat, that has a crown like a cowboy hat. looks pretty much like one. And it even has white cliffs on either side that almost look like a brim, if you got an imagination. Well, it was funny that what's this, de- this documentary, and they've been filming in Johnson Canyon, and uh, they didn't find anything. But as they left, someone was taking a picture of their suburban leaving the site, 
And there in the picture behind the suburban was the hat that they had not recognized. I believe it's the hat that is an earmark or a landmark to the lost Dutchman mine. And there's an awful lot of information I could give, but uh, even in Johnson Canyon, oh, I don't remember now, I've heard, but I don't remember when, uh, there were some stories about a one-legged black man who did exist and uh, that he had been buried somewhere in Johnson Canyon up in a side canyon or wherever it was and that there were treasures involved and almost the whole city of Kanab was out there digging furiously trying to find this treasure. So there are enough records about this general area to show or that have led people to come here looking for these things. Now, they've gotten some false leads from some of the maps, and they think that it's in the Uintas. Well, white man named the Uintas that go north or east and west at the northern end of Utah, the Uintas. But those aren't the original Uintas. The Indians call these mountains along here the Uintas. The Superstition Mountains men named down out of Phoenix, where they say the Lost Dutchman Mine is, were named Superstition Mountains by white men. But the Indians called these mountains up here the Superstition Mountains because they believe this is the place of their origin. And it is. To sum that up, there are a lot of things that indicate that there's something important going on in this area. There are petroglyphs all over. There are at least 350 found places north of the Grand Canyon that have Hebrew letters, the Alpha and the Omega, things like that. And I know of at least three places in petroglyphs where they have Somebody holding the heel of another man. Clearly the story of Jacob and Esau. Stuck a hand out, grabbed his brother's foot, his heel. And I submit to you that you could line up a million Indians for a million years and tell them to draw on the rocks and they would draw elk and deer and sheep and girls and stick men and whatever came to their mind, but not one of them would consider drawing a man with another man grabbing onto his heel. It just wouldn't come into their mind. But here it is in several places that I know of right here in southern Utah. <clears throat> That's the story of Esau and Jacob on the rocks. But God knows, and I believe he has showed, a Cyrus in time, where these things are. And I've seen, well, it would take from now and the rest of the day to go through all that, of all the information and the things I've seen, so that I believe it firmly. And these other things, it's just mind-boggling. But God is going to use it to show the whole world that he is God. Now, 
the History Channel had <coughs> a man <coughs> looking for equipment they need in this area to make a documentary. So he got on the KSL Classifieds section, and they had rented a bunch of uh, work-type ATVs or UTVs to haul stuff around. But they wanted something nicer and better-looking, sportier, to use on camera to wheel their dignitaries and the people that will be on camera uh, around the site. So he had found a sporty-looking four-seat UTV there that was gray. So he was going to call those people and talk to them about renting their UTV. And he somehow used my phone number. He must have looked at my ad and he got the numbers mixed up. So he calls me and says, that's a nice-looking UTV. We'd like to rent it. And we talked price and stuff. And, and then he said, uh, that's a gray one, isn't it? I says, no, it's blue. And I gave him my number on my ad, and he looked it up, and it wasn't the one that he was looking for. But meantime, we were talking and about this area and what I knew about the area, and I told him I knew somebody that knew more history here than anybody else walking. And this Cyrus I'm telling you about had his sons dive those three lakes with scuba gear and million-candle power lights and map it out and look at everything under there, and he even took a 20-foot PVC with a pipe that long as a T on the end and probed back everywhere to see if he could find treasure. They've been thoroughly through those. And the man that dug the well on top is his cousin or nephew, and I know him. And the man that supposedly had a heart attack because he had come close to finding this had already had two heart attacks, and they've got the story all messed up. But they are looking for the Aztec treasures, so they're coming to dive in there themselves and look around and make a documentary. And most of their stories are more mystery than history. The mystery of Oak Island, the mystery of the Aztecs. And in any of those documentaries, they, look at, they don't have anything, but they lead you right up to the point they think or you think they're going to reveal something, and then they say to be continued. Whatever. So they're going to come do this. Anyway, we had gotten to talking, and, and he decided he liked my UTV, so they decided to rent it instead. And it's not as sporty looking as the ones that they wanted, but it'll do. So then he said, uh, and we might even want you on camera. He hadn't seen me. Uh, I'm thinking, why? Well, I knew a little bit, and he knew I knew people around here. Uh, so we kept talking, and he says, well, can you line us up some other equipment and this and that? And some now some people, which I mentioned to you yesterday. And when I told him about Ross and some of the knowledge he has, he says, well, we need to meet him. And my executive producer wants to sit down with him and talk about the area. Now, we don't want to sit down and even visit with them. 
unless they are interested in the truth. If they want to perpetuate some of the myths and rumors, and that's all they want to do to sell documentaries, we're not interested. But if they want to learn the truth about the area, and maybe even find the real place, then we'll talk and not give them much but a little and see what they do and where they go with it. Now, how did this drop in my lap? It, to me, was such a coincidence that somebody's looking and they find something they like and call somebody else to talk to them about it. That's kind of odd. And we need a vehicle at some point to loosen the loins of kings and get this story out there. Now, would God use History Channel as a way to do that? I do not know. I do know he's using an unconverted man who has not known him to reveal it to. That's very clear here. And he says it'll go everywhere, but it'll be for the sake of Jacob, that is his church, because the temple vessels need to go in the temple. The library needs to tell us where the decayed places are so we can rebuild them. The original Cyrus didn't build the temple or Jerusalem. He authorized the Israelites, the Jews, to go do it. And this man is going to do all God's pleasure, it says up here. And God's pleasure is to have his people build his temple in Jerusalem. So it's all going to work out that way. Not the Jews, but the converted spiritual Israel. But would God use someone like History Channel? And if this thing is very near, why did they drop in our lap? That I don't know. It might turn out to be nothing, but it could turn out to be something because the stories about the Aztecs lead to this area and the stories of treasures lead to this area. And I have examined all the treasure maps and they're all talking and showing the same place, the exact same place. They're all selling it, but they're telling it in a different way but they all lead to the same place. We don't want to reveal that to them until we know what will occur. This is a very dangerous thing. Once these treasures of darkness are found, all these people who have been seeking them, like the king of Spain and the king of Portugal and the uh, Jesuits and the Mormons and the U.S. government, are all going to say, that's mine. And God is going to say, go wet your pants, they're mine. He's going to protect it. We don't have to worry about it. But we don't want to be stupid either because loose ship, lips lose ships. God tells in Isaiah 16, let your shadow be as the night. Not speaking specifically of this, but of the end time and the people that are around us here right now. Also, when Nehemiah went to examine the site of Jerusalem before building the walls, he went out at night and only took a very few men with him and horses to examine it in the dark so that enemies would not see what was going on. And enemies did arise as they built it. And they were 
building with their spears and their swords and everything right with them. So there's an element of danger, but God says he's going to do it, and he'll show the whole world who he is. Now, I'm out of time. I was going to go through the rest of this chapter, and maybe will yet, because the rest of the chapter, in one sense, appears anticlimactic after you talk about all these treasures that will loosen the loins of kings. But in it, God goes on after saying he's going to show the whole world who he is to explain unquestionably who he is. He goes ahead with the narrative and shows that. I don't have time to do it. Maybe I'll do it tomorrow. Maybe I'll go on to other things. But uh, I wanted to bring this to your attention because I think it behooves us to pray about it and ask God that if, if he's using the History Channel and wants some of this stuff to come through them, that he give us wisdom and prudence and guidance in dealing with them. And if he isn't using them, will we not reveal things to them that we shouldn't? So it's kind of a really dicey situation. And I may be spending some time with them. Uh, they want me to help coordinate some stuff. I, they don't know me from Adam's left ox. Uh, and yet, here they're asking me to do stuff. And he says... And then I, somewhere along there, I said, well, I have done some commercials up in Alaska and done voiceovers for wildlife uh, uh, documentaries or films. And he says, well, he says, maybe we'll use you to do some voiceovers. And we haven't met. I don't know him. Uh, and yet they're kind of moving in on us. Well, I want to meet Ross. Let's set up a meeting. <laughs> and I told Ross. And he says, well... If they want truth and reality, I'll tell them some. If they're just perpetuating myth, he says, don't want anything to do with it. So what he's going to do with them remains to be seen. And he likes to tell his story. And he could tell them stuff that might backfire unless it's what God wants done. That's why I say this needs some prayerful thought as to what might be done. And now they've invited me to get some extras on the set to be paid to do some menial labor, basically. I don't know what. Uh, just extras on the set to take care of whatever needs done. So if some of you want to be involved in that, let me know. Uh, we need six to eight people on Sunday and one or two on Monday. Uh, he needs two on Saturday, but one or two, but I'm trying to find them out in the world and leave the other days open for some of you. It might be interesting to watch them do this documentary and how they go about it and so on. And I would like to be there some of the time to see how they operate in case we do work with them later on down the line. So this just came out of the blue. So I, I don't know whether it was way above the blue or where... Exactly. But uh, I would appreciate your prayers about it and even your uh, participation if you'd like to go up. And they're paying 120 a day plus meals. Uh, and supposed to meet at a hotel, but he said he'd get back to me. He was busy yesterday. And I'll get more details on, on all that. But uh, maybe this is just business. But this is God's business here in Isaiah 44 and 45. 
And if we're involved in it, and these people God is bringing in for a purpose, uh, I want to accommodate them as much as I can, and it might be part of the work God wants done. That I don't know, so I'll pray and walk in and try to read the signs and see if God is opening a door or if it was just happenstance. If God's opening a door, it'll continue to open. If he's not, we'll go on about our business. So that's the thought process and pressure I'm under at the moment, and Ross is under, to determine from these people who are coming here, and he can tell them the truth about the Aztecs. On that Aztec calendar, there are V's, which represent the Ten Commandments. There are things on that Aztec calendar that none of them have even dreamed are on it, even though they're looking at it. And he can tell them all that stuff. And that will give them more for their documentary than Three Legs will. So, how far does it go? I don't know, but we shall see.